Welcome, everybody. I'm Sarah Worthington. I'm a professor of law here and also the pro-director for research and external relations. And it's a great pleasure uh, tonight to welcome uh, Professor Philip Bovett as our speaker. Sometimes you get lucky in chairing these events, and they get shared out, but this time I seem to have the claim to be the person entitled to chair. And I had that right, I suppose, because I'm a lawyer, and Professor Bobbitt is a lawyer, and um, as pro-director for external relations, I have, under my remit, the special relationship that the LSE has with Columbia, and uh, Philip Bobbitt is a professor at Columbia. It's one of the ambitions that we have here at the LSE in developing that relationship with Columbia that we provide a platform for academics from each institution to speak in our respective countries. I don't think um, Philip needed that special relationship to get an audience here tonight, notwithstanding it's the middle of the exam period, it's raining, the trains are in chaos as usual. Um, so welcome, everybody. As an academic at uh, Columbia University, you would expect that Philip Bobbitt's academic credentials are quite outstanding. And he was the Anderson Senior Research Fellow at Nuffield College in Oxford, where he was a member of Oxford's Modern History Faculty, the Marsh Christian Senior Fellow of War Studies at King's College in London, and currently Senior Fellow at the Robert S. Strauss Center for International Security Law at the University of Texas. When you get lucky, you'll have a position at the LSE as well. But really, it's his non-academic credentials that I think people are more impressed by. He served as a senior advisor in the White House, the Senate and the State Department in both Democratic and Republican administrations. And as he told us in the Times a few days ago, he has not advised six US presidents, but he has had senior posts in the National Security Council, including Director for Intelligence Programs and Senior Director for Strategic Planning. And I think those kinds of roles have given him an insight that few academics have the privilege to gain. He's written various books on nuclear strategy, social choice, even constitutional law, as well as the celebrated Shield of Achilles, produced by Penguin, published by Penguin in 2002. And I'm under special instructions from the Professor of International Relations at the LSE to say that is the best book on international relations written in the last decade. But tonight we're here to really mark the launch of Philip Bobbitt's new book, Terror and Consent, The Wars of the 21st Century. And you have to say that's a pretty stunning cover for a book. But even more stunning are the plaudits on the back. I'm not going to try and explain what the arguments are in the book, partly because Philip has a reputation for correcting people to get him wrong. But just by way of a warm-up, I want to rehearse some of the comments that the reviewers have made. And they're the sorts of comments that every academic would die for, basically. I mean, if I pick the worst of them, you get things like Henry Kissinger, perhaps the outstanding political philosopher of our time. Tony Blair has a go. He understands that this war is new in every aspect of its nature, 
how it's come about, the profound threat that it poses, and the revolution in traditional thinking necessary to achieve victory. New York Times. The most profound book to have been written on American foreign, foreign policy since the attacks of 9-11. And then our own Times, describing Philip, one of the most respected analysts alive. What else can I say? I should hand over to you, Philip, and um, let you tell us what the arguments are in this book. Philip's going to speak for about 25, 30 minutes, and then we'll take questions until you run out of energy. No, I qualify that. We've got dinner. So we'll take questions until it's dinner time, and uh, we've got a small window where Philip will sign copies of his book, which is on sale outside. So Philip, then questions then book signing, then dinner. Over to you, Philip. I never really quite know what to say when I come to a place uh, of such honor as this one. I get such a handsome introduction. But I was impressed once when a friend of mine who was a politician went to a penitentiary to give a talk to a particularly hardened group of criminals. And as he approached the, uh, this uh, prison, he racked his brain for what he could begin with. Could he say, this is such a distinguished audience, now that wouldn't work, uh, it's such an honor, and so on. Finally, he came up with the right thing. He said, let me just say how glad I am that you're all here. <laughs> uh, I want to begin... Uh, maybe uncharacteristically for a professor of constitutional law, by reading a passage from a poem. It's by the great uh, Nobel laureate, Chesel Miłosz, very appropriately titled The Poem for the End of the Century, and it begins my new book. When everything was fine and the notion of sin had vanished, and the earth was ready in universal peace to consume and rejoice without creeds and utopias, I, for unknown reasons, surrounded by the books of prophets and theologians, of philosophers, poets, searched for an answer, scowling, grimacing, waking up at night, muttering at dawn. What oppressed me so much was a bit shameful. Talking of it aloud would show neither tact nor prudence. It might even seem an outrage against the health of mankind. What was keeping me awake all those nights? And what was I so worried that I was scowling about? I believe that almost every widely held idea we currently entertain about terrorism and about its relationship to wars on terror is wrong and must be thoroughly rethought. The looming combination of a global terrorist network, weapons of mass destruction, and the heightening vulnerability of enormous numbers of civilians emphatically requires a basic transformation of conventional wisdom in the realm of international security. Among well-informed persons, persons like yourselves, 
a number of propositions about 21st century terrorism and about wars on terror are widely and tenaciously held. I'll list some of these, and I want you to ask yourself if you don't hold some of them uh, even yourselves. That terrorism has always been with us, and though its weapons may change, it will remain fundamentally the same. The weapon of the weak seeking to wrest political control from the strong. That because terrorism will always be with us, there can be no victory in a war against terror. That the very notion of a war on terror is at best a public relations locution like the war on drugs or the war on poverty because there's no enemy state against which such a war can be waged. We have a satirical magazine in America I like to look at sometimes, and it had this headline, Flash from War on Drugs. Drugs win. <laughs> that the very uh, idea that terrorism could be an enemy, a subject of warfare, is a bit absurd because it is a technique, even if sometimes a sinister and brutal one. And that because terrorism is a technique, it is therefore always a means to an end. That because terrorism is only a means to an end, that is, because it's not distinguished by the pursuit of any particular goal, the uh, Stern Gang and the PFLP can both be terrorists, though they pursue diametrically opposed goals, the loyalist and the uh, provost. And thus, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. It's really all a matter of perspective or commitment. That the root causes of terrorism lie in conditions of poverty, economic exploitation, the neglect of health and education, and in religious indoctrination that can and should be reversed before wars against terrorism can ever be won. That terrorism is best treated as a problem of crime, by law enforcement officials, and not as a matter for defense departments, which are inappropriate when there are no battle lines or armies to confront. That if, on the other hand, terrorism is a matter of warfare, there can be no place for the Geneva Conventions or other rules of law in war that have been applied in more conventional conflicts. That good intelligence will provide the decisive key to defeating terrorism that terrorism will not flourish in democracies. That the more power governments gain, the weaker the civil liberties that belong to the public. That terrorists win if they're able to force governments to enhance their powers of detention, surveillance, and information collection, or if the public significantly modifies its everyday behavior. Some of you may remember the column used to run, which still runs, called Bridget Jones's Diary. Uh, they made a movie of it, I know. Uh, Bridget Jones, as you will recall, has some issues with her mother. She thinks her mother drinks too much. She thinks her mother shops too much. And one day the mother comes in in the afternoon. She's clearly been drinking, and she has all these packages. And Bridget Jones gives her a very hard time until her mother says, Darling, don't you realize, if we don't keep up our habits, the terrorists win. That 21st century terrorism is the result of a clash of international cultures when medieval and backward societies confront modern, secular worlds. 
that the threat from terrorist attacks comes from the states of the Middle East or from failed states in remote regions. That if the jihadist movements are defeated, the threat of terror will subside, at least for the foreseeable future. That terrorists will be confined to low-technology weapons, at least for the foreseeable future. That because they will be so confined, terrorists pose at most a very modest threat to the stability of modern societies. That we should address this threat by concentrating on the likeliest assaults rather than spending and organizing for the remote possibility that terrorists would pull off a truly catastrophic attack. That the forces required to deal with terrorists are completely unrelated to the forces required to deal with natural disasters like tidal waves, epidemics, hurricanes, and earthquakes. And above all, that the wars against terror really have nothing to do with such state-centric activities as ethnic cleansing or genocide or the proliferation and acquisition of weapons of mass destruction or non-political events like power outages, tsunamis, earthquakes, catastrophic weather, epidemics, and other civilian catastrophes. And finally, the notion that I will discuss tonight, the idea that the war on terror as an idea really doesn't make sense. Why do we believe this? I venture to say that virtually everyone in this room believes this. Certainly everybody I know believes it. And the people I respect and admire the most, some of whom are in this audience, believe this. Let me read you something from uh, El Pais, written by the editor, who's quite a, a brilliant uh, writer. He says, here in Spain, we don't feel as if we're at war because we aren't. And neither are the inhabitants of the United States, however vociferously many Americans may insist that they are. War is something else entirely. No normal life can be led while war is going on. The Madrellenos, who lived through the siege of their city from 1936 to 1939, know this very well. The survivors of the daily bombardments of London during the Second World War, they know it too. And those Americans who participated in that war know it also. There is no war against terrorism. There can be no such thing against an enemy that remains dormant most of the time and is almost never visible. It's simply another of life's inevitable troubles. But all we can do as we continue to combat it is to repeat Cervantes' famous phrase, Patientia y barajar, have patience and keep shuffling the cards. And there are other characteristics of conventional warfare besides its mass destruction that a war on terror seems to lack. A review in the Times Literary Supplement by a good friend of mine, actually, put it this way. There is no war on terror. There is no enemy army, and there could be no negotiation, no treaty, and no peace. Terrorism is indeed a nuisance, a weapon of war. It is a technique of conflict as old as war itself. At present, the most notable fact about the years that followed the attacks on the United States in September of 2001 is just how little violence and death has ensued. Despite the invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq, there were fewer deaths in warfare in those years than at any time 
during the wars of the 20th century. Just to give you a benchmark, during the Second World War, on average, 16,000 persons died every day of the conflict. Furthermore, despite a murderous campaign against Americans that began well before September the 11th, the number of Americans killed by international terrorists since the late 1960s is about the same as the number killed during the same period by lightning or by allergic reactions to peanuts. Indeed, despite a series of terrorist attacks on London, Madrid, Casablanca, New York, and many other cities, since 9-11, the total number of persons worldwide who have been killed by a terrorist is about the same number as those who drowned in bathtubs in the U.S. One could rationally conclude that it would be neurotic to worry about terrorism as a threat to the survival of the constitutional order of the democracies. Finally, the character of terrorism seems more appropriate to treatment as crime rather than as warfare. One hears this all the time, especially in Britain and in other parts of Europe. Europeans often say that they know terrorism in a way that Americans don't, and that the reaction of the Americans after 9-11 is typical of a society that is confronting a threat for the first time and has reacted in panic. So when we look at these elements of a war on terror, is it like warfare? Is it terrorism that we've confronted successfully with the criminal law in the past? Is it possible to win such a conflict? When we look at those three elements, it seems really almost absurd to speak of a war against terror. But in the next 10 minutes or so, and perhaps in the question period afterwards, I want to show you how it is not only not absurd to think about this, but that it is actually an intellectual, a moral, a political, and a strategic imperative. Let's take terrorism first. When I hear people say, we know terrorism, I wonder what it is they think they know. They know the IRA, the PKK, the FLN, the PLO. They know uh, the Viet Minh. They know the terrorist of the 20th century. Nation-state terrorist, organized along military lines, quite hierarchical, intensely nationalistic, quite territorial. Terrorists seeking power in a particular country as the vanguard of either a particular ideological movement or a particular ethnic movement or often at the intersection of these two. People who say they know terrorism never seem to think about the sectarian mercenaries who sacked Rome in 1527 or the sectarian mercenaries who sacked Antwerp in 1576. Antwerp at that time, as you probably know, was the financial center of Europe, and it never recovered. It was thought to be, by the Catholic soldiers who destroyed it, a center of libertinism, of, uh, of Jewish uh, finance. And it's no surprise that the mercenaries who sacked Rome were the Lutheran Lanzknecht. People who say they know terrorism are not thinking of the pirates of the Caribbean. They may be thinking of the movie, but, but not the pirates who sacked Panama, who menaced the sea lanes to Europe for almost a century. Pirates who were often employed by states against other states to terrorize them. They're not thinking about the Native American savages 
who were attacked and who were employed by the colonial territorial states of the 18th century. They're not thinking of the Barbary pirates. They're not even thinking of the anarchists of the 19th century. Anarchists killed an American president. They killed a president of France. They killed two kings. They killed a czar. They killed an empress. At the time of the Spanish Civil War, they were the dominant party in Spain. But what happened to them? Were they defeated? No. No, they were not defeated. They simply disappeared when the form of the state that had created them and against which they fought, the imperial state of the 19th century, was superseded by the 20th century industrial state and its creations, fascism and communism. The state we live in is a nation state, not the nation state that your professors may have told you originated in the middle of the 17th century, but the nation state that arose with Lincoln in my country, with Bismarck in Germany, a state that is an industrial state, a state that made a bargain for power by saying, give us power and we will improve your material well-being. Adolf Hitler said that, Joseph Stalin said it, but so did Franklin Roosevelt, and so did Woodrow Wilson, because they all lived within the same constitutional order. Now that order is beset by a number of threats. If you believe that we've only had one constitutional order since the 17th century, then you'll find these threats either too disturbing to be real or not disturbing enough for you to give it much thought. But when you see there have been a series of constitutional orders, orders that achieved preeminence for a while and uh, managed stability for a century or more, and then entered periods of rapid and turbulent and violent change, you may entertain the idea that even this form of the state within which we've lived all of my life and the lives of your parents and grandparents and great-grandparents may itself be susceptible to change. The story we have in my part of the country back in Texas where we have live oaks. I don't know if you have live oaks in, in Britain. They are evergreen oaks, not, not deciduous. They're gnarled oaks. I find them quite, quite beautiful, but this is the part of the world where I grew up. They take many centuries to achieve maturity, and the story goes that two mayflies are sitting on a leaf of one of these ancient oaks, and one says to the other, they say these things grow. And the other mayfly says, why, that's ridiculous. I've been on this leaf all my life. It hasn't moved an inch. I believe that the nation state's challenges will be sufficient to force us to think about what will supersede it. I'm going to list five of these challenges, but I bet if I pulled this crowd, I could come up with 50 or 100 in no particular order of importance, no, uh, no order of priority. These are the creation of an international system of trade and finance that removes from any state the power to control the value of its own national currency. The creation of a system of international law, particularly human rights law, that supersedes national law. Milosevic was in the dock, for example, not because he had violated Serbian or Yugoslav law, but because he had violated an international norm, despite the fact he was a democratically elected president. Transnational threats like AIDS, SARS, 
climate change, and terrorism itself, that no state can hide from nor cope with on its own. A system of global communications that penetrates every culture, no matter how ardent its political leadership may try to prevent that, and the development of weapons of mass destruction that threaten any state, no matter how large its defense armory, no matter how many troops it can field. I believe these threats to the nation state will not mean the end of the state, and indeed that is a naive reaction, but nor will it mean the perpetuation of conditions of the constitutional order we all know now. And I speculate that this will lead to the creation of a market state, when you see states move from conscription to an all-volunteer force, when they go from providing unemployment compensation to providing labor retraining so the unemployed can rejoin the labor force, when they outsource activities hitherto thought of as strictly governmental activities. In the United States today, we pay more money to outsource private contractors than we do to civil servants, and there are more of them. Some of our budgets, NASA, for example, the Department of Energy, are more than 80% devoted to outsourced activities. When states deregulate industry, and more importantly, when they deregulate women's reproduction, they are moving towards market states, a state that says, give us power and we will maximize your opportunity. A very different equation. And I think market states, like nation states, like imperial states, like territorial states, like kingly states, like princely states, will produce a unique form of terrorism. Like the market state itself, that terrorism will be global, it will be networked, it will outsource its activities and privatize them. Al-Qaeda is the first of these, but by no means the last. And there is nothing about Islam or about the character of conflicts in South Asia or in Africa or in the Middle East that will confine this form of terrorism to those arenas or to those radicals. Now let's look at warfare. Terrorism is becoming more warlike, and warfare is becoming more a matter of terror. For five centuries, it took a state to lethally threaten another state. Apart from its own people, every state knew it faced only one potentially uh, murderous adversary that could destroy it destroys legitimacy, and replace it. And that was another state. Only states could keep armies in the field for decades, could develop and master complex military technologies and even more complex logistics. That's changing. It will soon be possible for relatively small numbers of persons, perhaps used by states, perhaps independent of states, to pose the kinds of murderous threats against the state that hitherto only states themselves could pose. At the same time, warfare is becoming more a matter of protecting civilians. Some of you may remember that in 2003, when General Tommy Franks proclaimed the end of major combat operations in Iraq. At that time, 146 coalition personnel had lost their lives. Since then, another 4,000 have died. He wasn't lying. Rather, he was thinking about a particular kind of conflict. You capture the capital city, you defenestrate the leader, you run your flag up, the enemy army surrenders, you occupy the territory, 
The war's over, right? Isn't that the end of war? But of course it wasn't. It was the beginning of a kind of conflict that he really hadn't imagined. When, when President uh, Bush flew onto the carrier, I think it was the uh, USS Abraham Lincoln, beneath the banner that said, Mission Accomplished, he wasn't lying, but he was very much mistaken. And finally, let me look at victory. We think, if anything, must be the same. It must be victory, right? Victory is a matter of winning, or at least not losing. We think of the scenes of victory, uh, bunting everywhere, right? Uh, uh, sailors tossing their caps in the air, pretty girls kissed. And if you read the description of scenes in this city uh, at the time of VE Day or the Armistice or even at Waterloo, they do sound very much like that. The cheering crowds are pretty much the same, but what they're cheering about has changed radically. Victory is the achievement of the war aim, and the war aim has radically changed. I have a dear friend in America, another professor of constitutional law, teaches at the Yale Law School, who's written quite a good book called The Next Attack. And he begins by saying, classical wars have a beginning and an end. So I called him up, and I said, what are you talking about? You think about the wars of the Greek city-states or the Persian Empire, the Roman Empire? He was thinking about World War II. And this kind of presentism isn't strictly confined to America. The war against terror will not be a war for natural resources. It will not be a war to silence any particular ideology or to replace it with ours. It will not be a war for territory or the capture of capitals. It will be a war to protect human choice. And that means the war aim will be to protect civilians. Victory will consist in doing just this. And like other human activities, like the activity of making a living, it will begin again every morning. And while not typical of wars our parents knew, it is not so untypical of warfare itself. So I believe when we appreciate these changes in reality, the semantics will follow and that up to now, we have tr been trying to drive reality by clinging desperately to an outworn semantics. This is true just as much of the administration in Washington as it is of its opponents. The administration says uh, they are fighting a war, a war against terror, but they have not increased the size of the army. They have decreased taxes instead of raising taxes. They have not brought Democrats into a war cabinet. They have done none of the things that we would do if we really thought we were fighting a war. In my view, the world did not change on September the 11th, but it did change radically in 1990, and 9-11 was one result. The wars against terror are the successor conflict to the long war of the 20th century and they will drive changes to the constitutional order that the end of the long war has already begun to bring about. These wars embrace three distinct but related struggles to prevent market state terrorism, to protect against gross diminutions of human rights and humane conditions, and to preempt the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction for the purpose of compellence rather than deterrence. When three new developments, the changing nature of terrorism I've described, the widening proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, and the heightened vulnerability of the tangible 
and intangible infrastructures of the developed states. When these interact, we will face a truly threatening prospect. The effort to preclude the interaction of these elements is the unifying motive force in wars against terror, although they may strike you as three very unrelated arenas. And thus, these wars are wars of preclusion. But they raise a terrible problem. Progress against any one of these challenges tends to exacerbate the situation in the other two. Thus, intervention to stop the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction may actually stimulate terrorist activity, as it has done in Iraq. Intervention to protect human rights may stimulate nuclear and biological proliferation, as it has in Iran and North Korea. Action against terrorists, as in Afghanistan, may actually quicken proliferation, as it has in several states, or, as in Somalia, make the human rights abuses worse. We had better be ready for this as a public, because it poses a very complex challenge, not just for leaders, but for citizens generally. There isn't an easy single answer. There's no, there's no saddle point that a strategy can, can pursue uh, that makes, it, makes the situation better in all of these three areas. In the meantime, we must step back and ask ourselves the most basic questions about the wars on terror. Do we know how to win such wars in the way that we knew what we had to do to defeat the fascists in World War II? Are we developing new strategic doctrines of the kind we had to develop to contain the Soviet Union in the context of mutual deterrence in the Cold War? Are we writing new international law and creating new institutions to cope with global problems in the 21st century in the way that we did when we faced similar global challenges in the early 20th century after the First World War? I think the answer to these questions is evident. Although it may seem as though we are in a race against our enemy, Al-Qaeda, we are in fact in a race against time. For time will bring forth new and much more lethal terrorist groups long after Al-Qaeda is defeated, as it will be. We must configure our forces to respond when we don't know and we can't quickly find out whether the source of a catastrophic event is a natural occurrence or one caused by terrorists, because the political result, increasing terror and the delegitimation of government, is the same in either case. One cannot say precisely how long we have. But I think we must urgently begin this fundamental rethinking. And that's really why I'm here. It's, uh, it will horrify my publisher who's sitting in the audience, but it's not to sell books. Like most academics, once we turn the manuscript in, we're off on something else. What we pursue, what everyone in this room is pursuing, even the ones who are shaking their heads while I speak, <laughs> what we are pursuing is the conviction that our thoughts, that our ideas, that our creativity, our ingenuity will be important to the resolutions of the problem that our generations face. That makes me an optimist. Uh, the physicist Leo Zillard once said, an optimist is someone who thinks the future is uncertain. And, and I suppose I'm that sort of optimist. Thank you for inviting me, and uh, perhaps we'll have some questions.
Roving microphones, so uh, Philip has said he'll take questions one at a time, which mean, means, I think, that you're actually going to get a proper answer to each of the questions that uh, you pose. Can you keep your questions short, and can you say who you are um, when you get the microphone? So we'll start here. Uh, Bernard Herman, thank you so much for such an excellent talk. There does seem to be two omissions in your list of five. Firstly, there is obviously the issue of demographic change and ageing in all developed countries which purport to be democracies. It does seem to me within the not-too-distant future to have uh, profound implications on their ability not just to act offensively but also defensively. And my second question is the issue of the growing underclasses in Europe and North America where states have perhaps destroyed the world many times over seem to have an inability um, indeed an unwillingness to maintain law and order perhaps only a mile or two away from their centres of government. Well, I certainly think that uh, demographic change could be added to that list, and I think you're spot on to, uh, to say it. Nothing is a, is a straight line, I'm sure, as uh, Napier Collins uh, could tell us, but it's not unrealistic to expect something like a straight line in the aging population of, for example, Japan, where a society will drastically shrink in its numbers, and those numbers will drastically age over the next uh, 50 years. And that will change, uh, obviously, the, the sorts of pressures for nation states. As to uh, a growing underclass, it's really quite, uh, quite complex. It differs greatly from state to state. Just as the demographics in the United States do not show a, a decline uh, because of our immigration and because the immigrants to America tend to be young and, and quite fertile, so the problem of the underclass is, is, is complex in each society and often uh, linked with problems of immigration. Since 1970, or since perhaps the, sorry, since the 70s, it's the middle 70s, there has been almost a kind of uh, a wage stagnation for the bottom quartile in the United States. And I wouldn't be surprised if the same thing were, were true in many other states, despite periods of uh, rapid growth. That's slightly misleading because the quality of life for many people has improved as technology has made uh, some things cheaper and as free trade has provided uh, much cheaper goods. But it is a kind of unaddressed problem. And certainly a problem that the market state tends to exacerbate rather than try to solve. When I go into the areas that I used to work in when I was about the age of some of these students, the first thing I notice is how well clothed people are. When I worked, uh, I worked in the American South for a while, uh, setting up a uh, clinic, a free clinic in an area where most of our clients had never, never even seen a hospital. And they'd never visited a doctor worked on plantations, they were sharecroppers. People literally lived in rags. There were, you'd see families where no one had shoes. And even in the prosperous areas where I worked out in Los Angeles and uh, uh, that were uh, called ghettos in those days, I'm not sure they call that now, uh, people were simply not as well provisioned as they are. 
people didn't have as many televisions. They didn't have access to automobiles. They didn't have, have uh, the kind of public transportation. So the quality of life has, has not necessarily declined. But their ability to live within the mainstream of the society has uh, rather not declined so much. It's just simply been stunted for almost 30 years. A state that makes its promise, give us power and we will improve your material well-being, uh, is, is going to face great stresses if it can't do that for such a significant part of its population. Okay, there are lots and lots of people with their hands up. I'm going to take a few more downstairs and then I'm going to move upstairs. So there's something about the third row. So if we can go to the third row here, and there are three people in the third row, and then I'm going to move up, then I'm going to come down towards the back. Okay? Philip. You're going to have to give short answers. I'm sorry. Yes, These I people are going to have to give I... very, very short questions, sorry, and you're going to have to give just short answers. You're, professor, you ask a question, you get a lecture. <laughs> so, Mary Caldor, LSE. Um, I'm wondering why you insist on the term war. I don't disagree with you <coughs> that terror is a new phenomenon, both because of its global Today's terror is a new phenomenon, both because of its global nature and because when conventional weapons become so destructive, terror is the main technique that people have. Nor do I disagree with you that military forces will be needed, along with other civilian tools, it, to protect Indeed, civilians. you've written very persuasively and powerfully about just that. So, but I'm really doubtful about using the term war, not least because of the article written by my neighbor, Michael Howard, What's in a Name in yes. Foreign Affairs, where yes. he points out that using the term war dignifies the terrorist as an enemy, uh, creates the sense that we're in a polarized situation, and encourages young people to join the jihadist movement. So I don't understand why the term war is so important for you. Well, let me just say at the outset that the best case against my position is the article in Foreign Affairs Magazine by Sir Michael Howard called What's in a Name? And I try and address it uh, as uh, cruelly and uh, effectively as I can in my, in my book, but I may not have succeeded against such a formidable fortress of argument. If you uh, work, and I, I, some of you I hope will, in the defense establishments of your various countries, I think you will be better placed to agree with me than you may be as a student because you will come to believe, I hope, that those defense establishments, whether they are well-funded or poorly funded, are organized for a kind of warfare that it is most unlikely they will ever encounter. And one of the principal motives for calling this a war is to try and change that phenomenon, to, to get the defense establishments of the democracies to change how they train their soldiers, where they put their funds, how they deploy their troops, to, above all, see the protection of civilians as their principal objective, rather than the conquest of territory or the advance of any particular ideology. If you don't call it war, then you're not going to get warriors. If you don't get warriors, you're going to have warriors fighting irrelevant wars and not, I believe, addressing the threats that beset them. But, but having said that, there's much to put on the other side of the ledger, and, and Sir Michael is right about this. 
One of the things that does is that you, have to, you run the risk of militarizing the domestic environment. You give a stature to your opponents that we would like to, to deny them. And there are a number of prudential costs. So in this, as in many things, I may be, uh, I may be wrong, but that's my judgment. Thank you. Mary, can you pass it? To, we're going to finish off row three, really. I've got oh, you've it. got I've got it? Already. Good. Row three is acting in a consensus. <laughs> Uh, my name is Connor Geerty and I work at LSE as well. And uh, I wonder, I mean, the IRA would have been delighted to have been in the war with the United Kingdom and kept saying so. And after a few misstarts, the British realized that was a disaster. Uh, and I do wonder, speaking as a European committed to crime model, I wonder whether, with respect, there's an American fetish about not doing the crime because you're addicted to your constitution. I mean, I think there's a bit like Bruce Ackerman as well, whom you alluded to in his book. You see all these problems about an inflexible constitution which makes it impossible to deal with issues as criminal, and you think we have to step outside that. So that's the first point to ask a comment on, that you're actually quite committed to a quite provincial model of the criminal law and don't see the flexibility in another system. Uh, secondly, I wonder whether you're dependent on a successful al-Qaeda because you need it to be a real threat. I mean, in, in your book, you mention how it was more of a setback, more menacing setback, uh, Pearl Harbor than Pearl Harbor. And I know it's not just al-Qaeda, it's what al-Qaeda stands for and so on. But it seems to me that people have been saying since the 80s there's this dreadful nightmare around the corner. And I wonder whether, in fact, the reality is the kind of guy who was sent out in Exeter, a uh, disturbed kind of guy who does this mishap in an effort to develop an al-Qaeda uh, project in the United Kingdom. But the question is a very specific one. It might have a very short answer. There's some great stuff in your book, I think, about international human rights. And I really think it's excellent. And in particular, you say... You say that a place which denies human rights on a crippling scale, attempts to annex its neighbours, refuses to govern by consent, rejects the rule of law, is somewhere where people may prosecute an armed struggle. And they wouldn't be terrorists unless they attack civilians. And I think that's a very powerful statement. I'd like to ask you a very specific question. Whether it follows from that, that in your view, Palestinians who engage in action, military action against the forces of Israel, are not terrorists? Those are actually three questions. Uh, so let me start with, uh, with the first observation. Just pick one. <laughs> that wouldn't really be fair, would it? Tempting as it is. Um, I think you're falling into the very trap that I, that I described. I say uh, the provision of crime is not appropriate to a new kind of terrorist. And you say, what about the IRA? Well, what about the IRA? What about the PKK? What about the FLN? What about ETA? These are all characteristics of a particular period. We fight them with the criminal law. We fight them effectively with it, and they will persist, and those tactics will persist. A network that is global, that uses global communications, that is not confined to a particular territory, that does not have national subjectives, poses a very different kind of threat. And the criminal law, uh, and I'll get to the constitutional point, has shown itself to be quite ineffective at dealing with that kind of, kind of a threat. Partly it's the result of our evidentiary rules. If we get information from a foreign state on the uh, condition of, of uh, not disclosing its source, we can't use that information in court. If we have information that we have stolen, there's no, there's no way to authenticate the chain of possession. We can't use that in court. There are many barriers to using the criminal processes in this country and in mine that make it quite ineffective. 
As to whether our Constitution is, as you suggest, a, a provincial one, I'm not the person to ask. Uh, a colleague of mine at Columbia once said, I support the Constitution because it's always supported me. And having taught constitutional law for more than 30 years, I feel a certain sympathetic uh, affinity towards it. I think the strength of the American Constitution, and the British too, by the way, is that it allows us to remake it uh, with each generation's problems. The Constitution we live in now in the United States is very different from the Constitution that Hamilton and Madison lived under. It will be very different by the time that you're my age or, or you are. It will change again. And that, I think, is its great strength. So characterizations of its rigidity or its 18th century nature fall on deaf ears if those ears are mine. Finally, as to whether or not Israel could, in certain circumstances, be regarded as having uh, checked off each of the indicia of the oppressive state such that violence against its non-civilians would not amount to terrorism, the answer is yes. It's also true of the United States, by the way. It is true of any state. The rules that I try and urge in my book are not rules for some set of states only. They are rules of law, and their strength lies in that we apply them in a neutral and general way, even when they may cut against our favorite policies or countries. Okay, we're going to do the last question in row three, because ma this man's got the microphone, and then this man upstairs, whose arm must be absolutely exhausted, will be the first question upstairs. So down here first, and then up there. My name's Rupani, Professor Blovitt. Uh, I wonder whether you agree with me that so long as... You need to put the microphone nearer your so mouth. So long as uh, uh, ruling circle of Anglo-UK-USA, Kabal who are really marketized states, you see there. And they've invaded Iraq into plunder the oil, pillage the property, million of people die. And I'm surprised that you didn't mention about it. So. Actually, Iraq does form a, a, much of my book uh, because of the, what we've discovered about warfare there and how terrorism has flourished in a lawless environment. I don't think that the Americans went into Iraq to plunder it for its oil. If you think of what the Americans have spent in Iraq already, the interest alone in that would far outpace the production of oil for quite some time. I mean, quite some time. If you think they went into to increase the value of Halliburton, on which, uh, uh, for which uh, the vice president was once a chief executive, Look at the stock of Halliburton. How's it doing? It's lower now than it was before the invasion, considerably so. I happen to think that the reason the Americans, the British, and other states went into Iraq is no one reason. There are many reasons. And I deplore the idea, which I often encounter, that there must be just one, and that the authors of these interventions must be lying to you or lying to themselves if they don't have just one reason for you. You wouldn't pick a college. You wouldn't decide whom to marry. You wouldn't even decide where to have dinner if you were confined to just, well, is it cheaper? Is it better food? Is it closer by? Is it raining? The conditions that move great states to war are multifarious. 
Now, there may be some people who would like to send young people to die so they can gain uh, the oil resources of another state. Coming from Texas, I certainly wouldn't favor that, but uh, that's my own uh, prejudice. So I'm very skeptical of your question, if indeed it really was a question. Okay, upstairs. Uh, Guy Wilson, you seem to be saying that uh, the market state will have to accept a reduction in sovereignty um, to deal with uh, this uh, global threat. Is that correct? I would say we'll redefine sovereignty. And I'm prepared to give you a little mini lecture on that. Uh, transparent, translucent, opaque sovereignty, but you probably don't want that, do you? Yes. Good. <laughs> I think if sovereignty is in the process no. of... <laughs> no, we don't. <laughs> Sorry. It's in the process of being redefined. Um, is there anyone else upstairs? Yeah. Okay. So you didn't mention the United Nations in your talk. I don't know if you did in your book. Um, do you see a role for the uh, United Nations in the 21st century in dealing with terrorism? Yes, I do, and it is discussed in the it is discussed in the book. I don't think the United Nations will be the sole global institution because it is the creation of nation states, and nation states behave in a very uh, well. They behave like nation states. That's why we are not going into Darfur. That's why we didn't go into. Bosnia for so long. Uh, that's why we didn't, to our shame, go into Cambodia. It was the Americans who vetoed the resolution condemning the uh, uh, Khmer Rouge and condemning the Vietnamese when they went in in what was basically a humanitarian intervention. And we did that in the Security Council. So I think it has a very important role, but it will not be the only institution. There's this man here, and then this man here, and then I'm going to move downstairs. Um, yeah, um, I, I just, um, I'm, just I'm, I'm, I'm Irish living in London, and um, the way the phrase war and terror doesn't apply to the IRA. In fact, um, um, the war on terror against the IRA was lost, uh, and um, they are now in, in, in gov government um, accompanied by a, a sort of post-fascist um, Democratic Unionist Party, and uh, th th that has happened for for for, for various reasons. You, you, um, and I mean, what you've said tonight scares me. I mean, I'm, um, and and the qu qu question I, I I would ask: Should uh, liberal states, of which I'm a skeptical admirer, um, uh, in, in, in con conducting the war on terror, of which I have no problem, be, be very, very careful th that they don't foment or increase, uh, I can't think of the right word, the democratic, or, or give to terrorists a democratic legitimacy, which they didn't have in, in the f first place, which is what happened with the IRA in uh, Northern Ireland? I think that's good advice. Uh, I think that each case is uh, sui generis. Uh, sometimes you, you want to uh, co-op your opponents. Sometimes you want to bring them in the process. Sometimes uh, that, that can't be done. Uh, I think that the 
popular idea that we will resolve these difficulties by winning the hearts and minds of our adversaries is, is not quite right. But the idea that we can separate radical groups from killers is right. Killing is not, is not natural to human beings. Uh, as any historian of the Second World War knows, most of the conscripts in a, uh, in a landing never fire their weapons. Our, our men come and women come back from these theaters of war with terrible uh, psychological uh, consequences because killing is not, is not native to us. And so separating out these movements from their most violent fringes I think is, is quite possible. And toward that end, my natural uh, tendency is to try to bring them into, uh, into the legal and political process. Now, whether that's been a success, in, I'm not uh, sufficiently informed to say. One more upstairs, and then we're moving down again. Hello, uh, thank you for your talk. Um, uh, you mentioned in your talk at the end that what should motivate us are the values and the thought behind it. And I, I just want to know how you able to re reconcile this with, uh, you know, um, uh, with, with the presence of Guantanamo, uh, with uh, Americans, America, the main sponsor of dictatorship throughout the Middle East, uh, supporting them, financing them, arming them, and incidents such as Abu Ghraib. So uh, for a common man in the society to look up the government and actually see that they are the promoters of good, how do you reconcile this? And you mentioned human rights. I think if you see the war on terror the, the way I urge it, should be seen in my book, then you might think of Guantanamo and Abu Ghraib as battles. You might think of them as having a place in that war not so dissimilar from uh, battles in the, in the past, uh, Antietam, uh, the Battle of the Atlantic Gulf. And they're battles that we lost. We lost them because we lost sight of the fact that we are fighting for the rule of law. In our desperation to protect our forces, to protect uh, the civilians for whom we were responsible. In a new and, and murky context, we lost sight of the war aim, of our true objective. Now about, this, about whether we are supporting democracies in the Middle East or supporting autocrats, my guess is we're probably doing both because we, uh, our, our policies are, are, are tend to vary through time with respect to the same regimes. I don't know whether or not the current administration's efforts to bring more uh, democracy to the region will, in the long run, bear fruit or not. For myself, I do not think this is a wise war aim. And, and I think that the uh, imposition of a democracy by force or intervening to create a democracy is a mistake. Having said that, once you have destroyed a government, you, you, you must replace it with a democracy. You can't imagine going into an area and replacing it with a dictatorship, no matter how uh, effective that might at first seem in prosecuting uh, war against insurgencies. Okay, we're going to go back downstairs, and I'm promising you I would discriminate in favor of women if any women put their hands up and volunteered a question. Uh, but there's a man at the back corner here, 
He's had his hand up for quite a long time. And then there's someone down here, and then I'll probably take two more. Women, welcome. And then we'll probably wrap it up. Thank you, Chair. I'm sorry I can't change my gender. Um, I'm Peter Mitchell, a one-time international relations graduate of LSE of many moons ago. Uh, Professor Bobbitt, you ended your, for me, very persuasive analysis um, on what you described as a note of optimism, but I wonder how you really justify that. Uh, surely you can only be optimistic if you believe that there are political leaders uh, around the world, perhaps particularly in the Western world, who have the intellectual ability and integrity to understand what you're saying and then actually act on it. Uh, I don't think any such person exists in Europe, and I'm not sure about your country or elsewhere. I wonder what you think. <laughs> I don't agree with you. I don't agree with you at all. I, I think uh, you've had very uh, far-sighted and thoughtful leaders in this country. Uh, we're going. Through, we've been through a pretty rough patch in my country, but <laughs> but I think that that is uh, that's about to change. Uh, and, I, and I think that. The kind of leadership you're talking about isn't necessarily confined to politicians who run for office. I was struck by the fact that, although I was in the U.S. at the time, that the Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, made what I thought were very thoughtful proposals about how some communities, particularly Muslim communities, might have courts that, uh, on a voluntary basis, with a floor of human rights guarantees, that were more sympathetic to the values of that community. And there's the roof fell in on this guy. There was everyone excoriated him. But it seemed to me like a rather far-sighted and, and, uh, and, and creative uh, proposal. So I think there are, these, there are these voices. You know, I've worked with a lot of politicians. A lot of people in my family were politicians. My, my, both my grandfathers were in the legislature. My great-grandfathers were in the legislature. My mother's brother was in the Congress, the Senate, and the White House. And I have a much more tolerant view of them than many academics. How do you evaluate the effects of the war on terror on the welfare of low-income countries, developing countries, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa? Your colleague from Colombia, Jeffrey Sachs, was here a month ago and made a very powerful argument that the war on terror was an, a huge cost. It had a huge opportunity cost in terms of what could have been done with the money spent, for example? Well, I'm certainly no economist, uh, and I would hesitate to uh, contradict a lecture I didn't actually hear, but I think that the primacy of, of the constitutional state, the, the, the primacy of stability, fairness, a sense of equity among peoples, is the best uh, and surest road to a productive economy. I think that people who believe that the relationships we had in previous eras that were more exploitative and more monopsonistic or monopolistic could be justified on the basis of the growth they brought to those societies or the growth they brought to our own are probably mistaken, that they're confusing capitalism with markets. Markets are really quite, quite ruthless, and markets do not favor monopolies. And yet monopolies are what effective elites seek. That's, that's how they deploy their political, and, uh, their political force and the forces of violence. So I would have thought that combating 
terror would be the first step in getting a society based on consent. And the society based on consent would be the most productive, the most efficient society that uh, we're likely to find. So take that, Jeff Sachs. <laughs> it's tempting to close there, but um, lucky last. Now, there was, a, there was a woman right over here. Oh, well, right. sorry. <laughs> I said I would discriminate. I've had my hand up from the very beginning, and you know that. <laughs> but anyway, I've virtually forgotten what I was going to say now. <laughs> um, yeah, I wanted to ask you really about democracy, so a bit more than the brief answer we got from when someone mentioned sovereignty. You said that nation states are going to become market states and that they are going to say, give us power and we will improve your standard of living, uh, increase your material well-being, you said. I think actually what I meant to say was that that was the bargain that nation states made. Uh -huh. That market states would say, give us power and we will maximize your opportunity. Okay, that was so in contrast. It's give us power and it's... Um, you also mentioned your list of five um, points which pointed so much to how everything's becoming more globalized. So there's the usual problem. What's left to the nation state when all the big important things they can hardly have any power over? So the they who are asking for power are still going to be saying not much more than we will help you improve your standard of living. And we, and this relating to the last question, will make sure you get and keep a bit more than those on the other side of the world. So give us power. That's and a very creative construction of the way I see things. But, you know, and going into... So it seems to me that you might be think democracy is sort of waning. I mean, the governments of Russia and China say exactly the same, and I think their people have consented to give them power. Uh, not in a democratic voting way, but they have, I, I suggest, because of they're going to increase their standard of living. And they have been doing. Well, what I had in mind um, is captured for me by a cartoon of my youth. I don't think anyone in this room can possibly uh, remember. Uh, you, you, most of you are not from the States, and the rest of you are too young. But... Uh, when I was growing up, there was a very popular nationally syndicated cartoon called Pogo. Pogo was a, 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 a setting very much like that in Peanuts. That is, there was a straight arrow character, Pogo. He had a rather loose friend. Pogo was a possum. His friend was an alligator. Albert the alligator always had a cigar uh, hanging out of his, uh, out of his mouth and... Uh, in the, in the particular panels I recall that for me show what is happening to the state and what will happen, they're, they're playing checkers. I think, do you call it drafts, something like that? Probably pronounce it differently. And the little possum jumps all the checkers of the alligator. The alligator's in a velvet smoking jacket. He's got a cigar. And he is simply appalled. The cigar drops from his mouth. But he recovers. He reaches into his smoking jacket. He pulls out some cards and he says, I've got a straight flush. What have you got? <laughs> and that, I think, is what will happen to the state. It is what has happened in the past. States that said, give us power because my father had power. 
Give us power because I will protect your religion and assert it against other religious threats. Give us power because I can negotiate the best agricultural and trading deal for the country. country. That, that the state never says, well, that's it, we're going out of business. They, they change the basis on which they claim legitimacy. I think that's already happening. Now, I do not mean that nationalism will be any less potent in the 21st century than it was in the 20th. But it will not form the same core of the state that it did. Just as nationalism was quite powerful in the era of the territorial states of the 18th century, but was not the key element of governing. Uh, if that's, uh, is that the last question? No, there's one more that you was said. <laughs> or did you say? What did you say? I'll certainly take one. What will one. I do with him? One more. Sure, of course. Make result of terrorism, then why does there need to, I mean, you pointed out that more people have died in bathtubs than from terrorism. I'm, yeah. You know, I, I have to ask, why does there need to be a war on terrorism? And, you know, <laughs> you use the word terror, but I think we're talking about yeah. terrorism here. Actually, why, does, why does there need to be a war on terrorism if so few people are dying because of it? I think that's the overriding question that I... I, I think that's... I think, yes, of course. Uh, that's a good last question. So seriously, that's the right. last question. All right. In my book, I argue that it is not a war against terrorism. It is a war against terror. That it is terror that will destabilize our states, not just terrorists. That what happened at Katrina, that what's happening in Darfur, that what happened in Rwanda, that these are all events not brought about by terrorists, although you can make a case but uh, for some of them anyway, uh, but that destabilize the state because it's terror. And when people are just scared to death, they can't give consent to the operations of government. They can't say yes if they can't say no. And the fact that we live in a period of relative tranquility to me suggests that now is the time to take steps to make sure that doesn't happen. You say, Professor Bobbitt, look, so few people have died. Why do we need a war on terror? And I say, so that we can meet again here in 10 years and say, so few people have died. That's what we want to preserve. The war aim is to protect civilians. It is a different war aim, a new war aim. And victory will consist in maintaining that so that you can come back here someday and say, Professor Bobbitt, uh, nothing has happened in the meantime. And I will say, let's have a glass of champagne. Okay, should we thank you?